Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick, or in the case of the novels, look at it a section at a time. And in this episode, I'll be beginning my look at Dick's, uh, I guess it was 1975 uh, published novel, uh, Confessions of a Crap Artist. Yeah, 1975. Now, this novel was was... One of a couple of novels that Dick published in the 1970s that he had actually written quite a bit earlier. Actually, this was written on the same period of time as We Can Build You, which we already looked at in this podcast. And in We Can Build You, we talked about how that novel really does feel more like a mainstream novel in a lot of ways. There is a science fiction element to it, uh, undoubtedly. It's set in a different world. It's set in the future. It's got robots and all that. But by and large, it's a relationship story. And that's uh, the case with the Confessions of, of a Crap Artist. Sorry, Confessions of a Crap Artist. There's no article in front of it in the title. But in this novel, there is... It's a straight-up mainstream novel. That's what I want to say. Now, there are kind of quirky elements of it that, that qualify it to be, you know, at least in the realm of science fiction. There's like occult elements and conspiracy theory elements and that kind of stuff happening in the backdrop, but it's a straight up realistic mainstream novel. It's not set in the future. It doesn't have any science fiction elements. It's actually one of a series of novels that Dick wrote in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, that would later be published. Those were his mainstream novels. This was the only mainstream novel he published during his lifetime. Uh, It was published in 1975, as I said, written back in, in 59. Uh, he had he had really wanted to be a mainstream writer, so he wanted to write this stuff before he went back to science fiction in in 1962 with Man in the High Castle. And even that novel, if you think about it, despite being an alternate history, is pretty, you know, pretty conventional. A lot of its storytelling and the way it approaches its stories. Um, um, so it's it still feels like a Philip Dick novel, I would say. Uh, its narration is quite a bit different than what we're used to, I think, but. It's kind of that first-person narrative that we saw in We Can Build You, but it's not entirely in first person. The, the actually the point of view is a bit disparate in this 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 novel, and we'll we'll have to talk about that. Um, but it's it still feels like a Philip Dick novel, right? And you know, you might be waiting for that science fiction element to emerge at the end, right? You know, we've been in novels like that before, like, you know, Time Out of Joint, which the first half of that novel is pretty a conventional novel of a guy in the suburbs living his life with his sister and his, or his, his yeah, it's his sister and the sister's husband, right? And then weird things start to happen, right? But the weird things don't really happen in this novel. It just stays in that conventional world. Now, the title makes us think that the that this novel is about this man, Jack Isidore. Um, now, Isidore, of course, is the same name as the character who was in um, Do Andrews Dream Electric Sheep, right? So there might be a connection we can make to that character, or it's just a name that Dick happened to like. But um, he's the crap artist, which basically, in this context of the novel, is something given to him by his brother-in-law, Charlie, who basically says that he is someone who's interested in all these hokey, weird, 
religions and ideas and conspiracies. He's just a conspiracy theorist, essentially, and he collects um, data. And the closest we get to kind of a conversation about sci-fi in this novel is in the fact that he collects pulp magazines and he calls these like pseudoscience journals. He really does think that these writers seem to be conveying their ideas through fiction because they can't get their ideas expressed in normal, you know, journals. You know, that's a bit of a reach, obviously. But it's something that Dick played within a few of his short stories published in the 1960s where he tries to kind of get into the context of, of science fiction in the 60s uh, or, or of the time that he was really emerging in science fiction. Those were written in the 60s. Um, but it's it's not really a novel about him. I mean, he's an interesting character and there's a lot to say about him. But this novel is really about his sister and her sister's husband and their relationship and this other couple that crosses past with them, the, the Antilles. And that's really what this novel is about. It's a novel about relationships. And it's a very, very powerful novel about relationships. It's a very bleak novel. But if you want to understand Dick's views of relationships, um, you have to read this novel. In fact, it's, it's something, if, we, if you thought about as much how much Dick wrote about relationships in the 50s and 60s, we talked about that at, at length in this podcast. You know, this novel is like almost a skeleton key to understanding a lot of that. It really wraps up his views of of gender, of sexuality, of family, of marriage in the 1960s. And I think that's really the contribution of Confessions of a Crap Artist for the reader today. Um, now, perhaps elements of it are exaggerated, but I'm not sure. You know, I'm not from the 50s, so I don't know. But, you know, the image seems true to life to me. Uh, certainly, I've been reading a lot of Philip Dick, though. So, you know, it, it fits into that portrayal he's making of relationships. And of between of the marriage, the bourgeois marriage. That's the central theme of this this novel. So the title character, the crap artist, isn't isn't married. He's not interested in marriage. He's not really in that conversation except tangentially. He's he's just living with his sister and his brother in law. So he's not really in that conversation. And it's a bit of a dodge in the title. I mean, this is really a novel about relationships. Now I haven't read his other mainstream novels, to be honest, and the ones that were published posthumously. I never purchased them and I never got a hold to them. I, I hope to someday to talk about them in this podcast. It's going to be sometime in the future, though, because I, I really am just for now going to look at the stuff published mostly during his lifetime. I'll look at Radio Free Albemuth when we do Valis, but that's kind of a special case. Um, the rest of the posthumous stuff I'm going to hold off on um, and, and get to at some later date. But that's, you know... If it's like this, then then I'm going to look forward to talking about it, to, to say more. But, you know, I'm, I'm assuming some of the same themes come up in those mainstream novels. Ho- you know, hopefully they, they do branch off and help us explain other aspects of Dick's fictions. I mean, this this has stuff on mental illness and relationships. I think that's the, the core, but particularly relationships. I'd like to see what his other stories may say about technology or work or these kinds of elements, because... Um, you know, to the degree they can feed off of and, and develop what we know, what he, his ideas about these are things from a science fiction. This one really, really almost puts a cap on what we know about Dick's views of relationships and marriage in particular. Now, as always, I'll, I'll go through the, the novel and, and in various parts. Um, this one, I think I'll, I'll break up into, into different episodes. I didn't do that with some of my tears of policemen said just because of timing issues. But I think now I have the time. Actually, I'm recording this back in Taiwan. Um, I'm glad to be back here. It's only going to be here for three weeks, though. But hopefully I'll be able to get through a couple of Dick's novels and continue to make progress on this on this series while I'm doing it. It's a much more comfortable place to do these 
these podcasts actually during Spring Festival, um, which is of course a, a couple weeks of vacation in the Chinese speaking world. Um, but I'll, I'll go through it uh, and I'll give my thoughts on each section. And then at the end, you know, probably episode four of this series, we'll, we'll go and think back at you know, the themes overall and give my overall impressions of this, of this book. Uh, I will tell you, I think it's a great book. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's, it's, it's dark. It's pretty bleak about marriage, but I think uh, it's, we need it to understand Dick's overall view about, about marriage. And actually this is a book that maybe I really would lead me to really regret the the order publication approach I took in this podcast. I've regretted it before, but you know, it's certainly uh, in this case, it would have helped our look at the sixties novels to have this one in our kind of in our arsenal already. Oh, let me just talk about the point of view of this. The the book's called confessions of a crap artist. So you think you're going to get a first person narrative from Jackie Cedar's point of view. And we do get that. and, And it starts out that way, but that's not really the approach Dickens of taking here. There's actually um, a handful of points of view we get here. We get uh, Je- uh, Jackie Cedar's point of view. So we get first-person narration. We get later on first-person narration from his sister's point of view, Faye, um, Faye Hume. We also get third-person narratives that look at different characters. And, and I'm going to make a point when we talk about each chapter to let you know which point of view we get this from because that may help us understand Dick's approach. I don't know if it makes it stronger. I, I think... Maybe Dick felt he wanted to tell this from Jackie Cedar's point of view, but he found he needed to be in certain places to tell the story. And that, I guess, is, is, is bad planning or, or, in a way, bad storytelling. I don't know. I've, I have read novels before that have different points of view, but they tend to stay in third person, right? Like the George R. R. Martin novels, right? Where you have different points of view, but it's all in third person narration, and you'll just the narrator will go into the heads of those characters. I can't think of a, of a novel... That, you know, I guess Ulysses, Ulysses is third person narration throughout as well. You know, I can't think of another novel off the top of my head that that jumps from first person to third person, except as an occasional device, you know, maybe for a few pages or something. I think King did that once in a while, once in a while. But as a consistent strategy of, of flipping between third person and first person narration, I can't think of a of another novel right now that that does this. But that's something that's a characteristic about this story. Now, we start out with the confessions. We start out with Jackie Cedar's point of view. And that's how chapter one begins. So chapter one is from his point of view, first person. And we start out with this really profound opening statement that I think, you know, sums up a lot of Dick's anxieties. And that's the kind of this us living in a liquid world. Right? I'm stealing this term from Zygmunt Bauman, a contemporary sociologist who has written about liquidity in the modern global world. Right. So he has got right a series of books like Liquid Love and Liquid Fear and, you know, the Liquid World, even one. And they're kind of they're quite good, even though they're they tend to be short and, you know, academic. But they're good snapshots of aspects of the modern world from a, from a very good sociologist point of view. But the theme that kind of connects all this is liquidity, right, that we don't really have structures anymore. We, we are forced to fit into whatever shape the world happens to be at a certain point of view, right? And so the world is liquid. We have to be liquid to make up with that. Our relationships become liquid. Our work becomes liquid and all that. And, and his books, I think, are quite good. He's written a lot. He kind of churns them out. I don't know if he's still around. He, he might be dead by now. I don't know. Back, um, you know, I, I, I used to read a lot of his stuff. And, I, you know, it, 
when you open up this book, you, you think you're in a, you know, a Bauman analysis. Quote, I am made out of water. You wouldn't know it because I have it bound in. My friends are made of water too, all of them. The problem for us is that not only do we have to walk around without being absorbed by the ground, but we also have to earn our livings. Actually, there's an even greater problem. We don't feel at home anywhere we go. Why is that? End quote. And the answer he gives is World War II, but it's a much deeper problem. And that's a problem for all of these characters in the story is they're not, they're trying to seek some kind of solidity, a solid place to live and to, and to make meaning. And nothing really holds, right? Because their relationships are toxic, right? So that's that's their core theme here. Now, the, the narrator here says it's all World War I, II's point of view, right? And why is that? Well, the importance of World War II, according to our narrator here, is that it's it really was a moment for his generation, and, and this character happened to fight in World War II, where things did change, where values, arbitrary values, kind of shifted towards others, right? Like suddenly the treatment of Japanese is a good example we get right away here where suddenly we have to hate the Japanese, right? We, you know, Japanese were our neighbors. This is set in California where you had a lot of Japanese Americans and suddenly they're the big enemy. So he actually highlights the f treatment of Japanese. And I, I think this is at a time when there wasn't a lot of overall awareness of Japanese internment and, and the treatment of Japanese Americans during the war. So it's, it's to Dick's credit that he points this out. He even gives a little story about a Japanese-American he knows, like a man named Mr. Watataba, who he called Jack, Jack Pumpkinhead because of the way he looked and his experiences during the war. And it's kind of a nice little um, acknowledgement of, of the arbitrary and cruel treatment of Japanese-Americans during, during the war. Um, but mostly this chapter introduces us to Jackie Sidor and his fascination with science fiction and particularly his theories and the theories that really captivate him He's kind of impressionable, we should we have, we have to say. He's someone who, you know, takes on theories and embraces them and falls head over heels for these theories, but can easily be distracted by the next best thing, right? And in fact, there, there's kind of a shift over the course of the novel from him being interested in kind of earth conspiracies to sky, cons sky, consp sky conspiracies, which is a bit ironic because he does say on page five here, this is the Mariner edition, Quote, today in the 1950s, everyone's attention is turned upward to the sky. Life in other worlds preoccupies people's attention. And yet at any moment, the ground may open up beneath our feet and strange and mysterious, mysterious races may pour out into our very mists. It's worth thinking about. And out in California with earthquakes, the situation is particularly pressing. Every time there's a quake, I ask myself, is this going to open up where a crack in the world that finally reveals the world inside? Will this be the one? End quote. By the end of the novel, he's kind of involved with the UFO cult. So he does kind of tie into the, the looking up, the looking to the sky trend. But um, nevertheless, he he's interested at this point in his life with these Earth theories. So like the lost continent of Mu or Atlantis. And I don't know what the equivalent today would be. I suppose there's still Atlantis theorists out there, but I guess flant earthers, you know, whoever who thinks that we, we've been lied to about geography. Right. And he gets this stuff from like science fiction pulp magazines in part, which he takes as truth. You know, he acknowledges that this is fiction, but he, he calls them kind of pseudoscience journals. So on some level, he thinks that these authors are trying to convey the conspiracy through fiction. And it's kind of an interesting idea, actually. Now, his job is something we've seen before, or, or I guess if you read these chronologically in order of when he wrote them, Dick wrote them, we would say 
you know, this is a job that would be recycled for later character, but that's the job of a tire regroover. Uh, when we looked at our friends from Frolox 8, I asked if this was a real job. Well, here we have a character working as a tire regroover. The same kind of job, same idea. When the tire is balded from, you know, driving around, you take it into the tire regroover. Um, or the, it sounds like actually what happens is these tires are like thrown away. And then they pick these up at the junkyard, regroove them, make them look new. And it's a real art. And actually, Jackie Cedar is quite proud of the art that goes into this. They regroove it and then sell them off as, as new or, or gently used. He really likes beating the machine and being as precise and perfect as the machine as he regroups these tires. So that's our, uh, that's our introduction to Jackie Sidor. It's a very fascinating one. I think at the heart of it is this, this idea of liquidity, this idea of people in the 1950s not having grounding. And somehow World War II is a key element in that, right? And now, you know, anyone who feels anxiety in the 50s about the world falling away, I mean, you, you have to go back to the profound event of that generation to start to explain that, right? So it's not surprising he goes back to World War II for explanations. Um, so that, I mean, that's a key part. And then his kind of fascination with theories and conspiracies is the other thing we learn about him in this chapter. Well, chapter two continues with uh, the point of view of first person of Jackie uh, Isidore. And he just here, this chapter mostly is about his life. It's a, it's a longer chapter that goes into some more detail about his life and the people he's connected to. It starts out though with consumption because who in the 1950s couldn't be reduced to their consumer behavior, at least in, I guess, Dick's point of view of, you know, he's wrote a lot about consumption in the 50s. He was kind of obsessed with it. A lot of his short stories deal with this theme. So it's not surprising we find ourselves thinking about consumption right away as we open up this book. Quote, to me... Though the library had been important in forming my education convictions. On Fridays, which is my day off, I go down around 10 in the morning and read life in the cartoons in the Saturday evening post. And then if the libraries aren't watching me, librarians aren't watching me, I go to the photography magazines from the rack and read them over for the purpose of finding those special art poses they have the girls doing. And if you look carefully at the front and back of the photograph photography magazines, you'll find ads nobody else notices. Ads there for you. But you get to be familiar with the wording. Anyhow, what those ads get you if you send in a dollar is something different from what you get see even in the best magazines like Playboy or Esquire. You get photos of girls doing something entire, else entirely, and in some ways they're better, although usually the girls are older, sometimes even baggy old hags, and they're never pretty, and at worst of all, they have the fat, sagging breasts. But they're really doing unusual things, things you never ordinarily expect to see girls do in pictures. And it goes on with describing this, but this is kind of interesting, right? you got this idea of 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 the pristine society of the library right and right under the surface of it if you just know how to look is that that google ad kind of specialized to your eyes right only you see it I, i'm sure that happens to people all the time right you're flipping through a magazine and if you don't care about perfume the perfume ads just kind of phase by you you don't notice they're there but if you're interested in perfume you'll notice those ads right and that's what happens to cedar here but the you know the fact that we got an act of consumption taking place here is is important. Um, and we actually get quite a lot here about his different access consumption, whether it's going to Reno or purchase or, or, or seeing prostitutes, uh, buying pulp magazines or whatever. Um, he, he goes on at quite a bit of length here. Um, so, yeah. So after we get this really interesting story about these kind of under black market pornographic photos that are distributed through 
art magazines, photography magazines. We learn that he often takes trips to Reno with friends, you know, and often they see prostitutes when they do this. And this is apparently where Jackie Cedar had his sexual awakening. Um, it's not till later in the novel that we get any sense of him as a sexual being at all, although obviously from chapter two we learn that he does have these proclivities and interests in sex. Um, we get a little bit more about his consumption of pulp magazines, and here's where we first see the term used to describe pulp magazines as pseudoscience magazines, suggesting that maybe this character can't see the difference between fiction and reality. He presents himself as a scientific person who just reads the facts and is only interested in the facts, but at the same time, he does seem to, you know, this, it's a bit blurring between what is fiction and what's not, and this is, of course, common with any, I think, someone who anyone who has this tendency towards embracing conspiracy theories. We get a bit of a background here. Um, his parents, for instance, we learned had no really respect for his interest and didn't really encourage him. At one point, I think it's his parents actually burn all his pulp magazines and things. Um, he talks about how he embraced a theory in his youth that sunlight has weight which I guess it does. Photons, I guess, have weight, particles and waves. Um, but the, the, the idea was that the Earth kind of gained weight from the energy from the sun, right? And that the Earth's, the Earth's getting bigger and bigger, and he became obsessed with this particular theory. And of course, if you've met someone who has obsessions with particular niche theories, it does come off as, as odd. It's very different when someone comes at you with their, if they're obsessed with politics, right? Like, I know plenty of people who are obsessed with, like, Trump, Donald Trump, and the Mueller probe and things like that. And, and it's not that they're conspiratorial. They, they consume a lot of news and they seem well informed on it, but it does kind of reach the level of an obsession. But it's kind of a normal obsession, right? Or if someone's obsessed with Mozart or, or a particular author or a TV show, that's respectable. But if you're obsessed with Flat Earth or, or Scientology or something, then you're, then you're a weirdo, right? Um, so I don't know how, you know, I'm not saying that, there aren't some theories that are really out there and that obsession with them is not healthy. But, but I think in general, any obsession probably is a little bit unhealthy. Um, now we're introduced to his sister, Faye, his sister, Faye, and we get the background of how Faye meets her husband, Charlie. And I don't think we have to go too much into this. If you don't, you know, it's, it's important to the story of this relationship. And as I suggested, this novel really is about Faye and Charlie's relationship, but it's actually Charlie who calls him, calls Jack, crap artist because of all his goofy theories. Now, Isidore proves himself to be pretty attentive to his sister's relationships and, and, and is able to observe them fairly scientifically and objectively. She, he does notice things about uh, Charlie that, that I think pr prove out to be true, or at least about that relationship. Um, so how does he describe Charlie first? Uh, Quote, the irony of a slob like that, a paucy, beer-drinking, ignorant Midwesterner who never got through high school, calling me a crap artist lingering in my mind and caused me to select the ironic title that I have on this work. I can just see all the Charlie Humes in the world, with their portable radios tuned to the Giants ball games, the big cigar sticking out of their mouths, that slack, vacant expression on their fat, red faces. And it's slobs like that who are running this country and its major businesses, its army and navy and everything else. It's a perpetual mystery to me. Now, later on, he asked, you know, why does Faye marry this guy? And he says, Faye's whole motive for getting mixed up with a man like this in the first place was to finally wind up with a house such as she did wind up with. After all, 
When he did meet her, he already owned a factory and netted a good 40000 a year. Our family had never had any money. End quote. So Faye is trying to move up in society. So she marries the man who's going to be a good provider. right? And th- this isn't really discounted by anything we see later in the story. That It's not that she's a gold digger. She's not after a rich, super rich guy, but she wants the husband, the husband who will be the provider. The, somewhere later on, it's described as like the husband who will, you know, fix things in the garage, you know, fix up the fence, provide the kids, go to work, pro- provide the income. You know, and I, I think at one point, it's even there's, there's actually a numerical value of what she needs every year just to sustain her her lifestyle, from like twelve thousand dollars, which is not a small amount of money in the 1950s. So what the relationship between Faye and Charlie is that of a consumer, a consumer-based marriage, right? The marriage becomes the foundation for a consuming unit, which, of course, is key to 1950s bourgeois middle-class culture. We're not surprised then we get a little bit of a criticism of this by Dick through, through um, Jackie Sidor. Now, they live, they end up moved, buying a house in Marin County, and we get this huge description of the house. And that's most of the rest of chapter two is a description of the house, which is a massive consumpt, consumptive act, building this huge house. They have horses, they have land. It's out in this kind of small town suburban area. Um, but the house has all sorts of problems. And I, I think it's kind of fascinating that despite all the money they spend on the house, it's kind of a shitty house. Uh, it's it's got all kinds of ventilation problems and drainage problems and it's got too many doors it's poorly manufactured it's built on this concrete slab so it's always cold um, nevertheless it's the ideal kind of suburban life but it's it's just based on kind of shittiness and when we think about dick's obsession with how horrible suburban life is like when he puts it on mars it's always degraded and decaying and, and junky and, and kind of miserable you know, that's that's a model of how he saw the 1950s, 1960s suburban life in California. Here he's looking at it straight up, honestly, right? Like this is where it's set. And there's no kind of science fiction cover where he's, he's just doing a metaphor. It's, this is exactly what he thinks the 1950s suburbs, suburbs were like. Poorly made houses where people kind of live to show off their wealth and they couple just for the fact of to be married and to have an income and to, to have the house. It's like, it's like you marry so you can have the house rather than the house being a, the ideal place for one's marriage to unfold. It's really bizarre. Jackie Cedar knows it. So despite being a weirdo, he understands that they're even weirder in their, their approach. So chapter two gives us a lot of this background on, on, these characters um, and particularly introduces Faye and Charlie to the story. So chapter three is our first change, dramatic change in, in point of view narration where we get suddenly we shift to a third person narration. Now, how do we read this? The, the book's called Confessions of a Crap Artist. Jackie Cedar writes things that make us think he's writing a memoir about his himself and his family and his sister and all that. So is he writing in third person? Is he kind of putting himself as the narrator of this event based on other reports or whatever. I mean, it's a little too intimate and sometimes he can get into characters' heads. So it doesn't seem that's what's going on here. Or is it just Dick feeling he needs to have an eye into this scene to complete it? And it's not part of the titular confessions of a crap artist. I don't know. Either way, it's kind of interesting to think about it. Um, I, I think I can imagine Jackie Sidor as a character. He's, 
goofy enough that I could imagine him writing suddenly, oh, now I need to tell the story and I'm going to tell it not as if I was because I wasn't there. I'm going to tell it from a third person narration. So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe the whole thing is still the confessions and it's not broken up. It's just uh, Jack using different points of view to tell his tale. Uh, that, that'd be kind of a fun way to look at it. As far as I know, I haven't seen any analysis of of these narration uh, perspectives other than just acknowledging that they took place. So um, this scene is a, it's a scene all about Charlie being asked by Faye to go buy tampons. Uh, essentially she's on her, she's having her period and she asks Charlie as he leaves for work or whatever. I think he's actually dealing with Elsie. He's dealing with like kids, right? And she says, bring me, bring me a pack of tampons. And Charlie obsesses over this because he thinks she knows I hate getting these. She knows it's embarrassing for me. She did it just to kind of torment me. Right. So that's in her, his mind the whole time. Um, he actually thinks at this point, like how unknowable women are. It's like a standard 19th century narration, almost like the man who doesn't understand anything about women. Quote, what happens? He wondered if she doesn't get it. Do they bleed to death? Tampax the stopper like a cork? Or he tried to imagine it, but he didn't know where the blood came from. One of those regions. Hell, I'm not even supposed to know about that. That's her business, end quote. Uh, that's a pretty strange thing for someone in the 1950s to say. I, I know it's we're more sexually open and more educated about sexuality now than we were in the 50s. But for a grown man not to know what a woman's menstruation is about is a bit weird. And maybe that's just a way we need to understand Charlie as a weird guy who doesn't want to understand women and, and mean no effort to but it's a it's actually it's a bizarre statement i think for for me at least uh so he he's at this store and he has to buy these tampax we actually i guess that's the brand name right and he refuses to do it in fact he then goes to a bar and leaves his daughter and his daughter's quite young i think the daughter's like three or something leaves the daughter in the car well he goes have some beers in the at the bar and finally, he, he goes back to to buy the Tampax after leaving the, the kid in the car for a number of, of, like an hour or something. Finally, he grits his teeth and buys the Tampax, comes back to the car, drives home, right? And the minute he sees his wife again, he's just filled with resentment over having to been lowered himself to buy this, this product for, for her. Now, she's a bit childish about this, too, and maybe she is playing with him a little bit. These two people do seem to have a game. They run on each other all the time. So he comes in. He says, look what I got for you. He said, holding out the jar of smoked oysters. Because he also bought the smoked oysters for her, something she likes. Faye said, oh, and took the jar, accepting it with a manner she, that meant she understood that he had gotten it for her with such deep purpose, some desire to express his feelings. Of all the people in the world, she was the best at accepting a gift, understanding how he felt, or how children and neighbors or anyone felt. Never said too much, never overdid it, and always pointed out to the important traits of the gift, why it was so valuable to her. She looked up at him, and her mouth moved into a quick grimace-like smile, tilting her head to one side she regarded him. And this, he said, getting out the Tampax. Thanks, she said, accepting it from him. And she took the box, he drew back, and hearing himself give a gasp, he hit her in the chest. And then we get into this wife beating scene where Charlie pretty violently attacks Faye. I mean, 
it's suggested at the end of the chapter that he broke one of her ribs while beating her and it's a we just learned how like perverse and bizarre this this relationship is the conversation they have after he beats her how kind of life just sort of goes on after that point where she's kind of like i mean you know maybe you broke my rib but still like their life goes on and they talk about the kids and, and the rest of the day. It's, it's, you know, the suggestion here is that maybe he's been beating her for a while. At least that's how I read it. Um, but she's sort of internalized this as part of their relationship. And it's, you know, I think Dick, I don't, you know, I, I, there ha, I, I have read that Dick has had beaten some of his wives from time to time. I don't know all the details about that. And I'm not a biographer of Philip Dick. And I haven't even read that many biographies of him, but I have read that he has from time to time beaten the women he was with. And, you know, I don't know what that meant for him. Here it's 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 kind of an unfortunate scene because it's presented almost a bit comically, in fact, or, or presented almost as a way to get at the weirdness of Faye rather than the brutality of Charlie. Although both are, you know, described in a way, but it seems it's more about Faye's kind of manipulative attitude like she was kind of almost egging him on and that's a really unfortunate part of this this chapter anyways but nevertheless the overall story here of just how bent out of shape charlie gets over the simple act of buying some you know some tampons for for his wife it, it's it's bizarre but it, then it culminates in this this beating and then life just goes on right even though he may have broke her rib it just sort of goes on and to kind of suggest that that life just sort of goes on. Chapter four, we jump back to a first-person narration, but it's not Jack now. Now it's going to be Faye. So we get Faye's point of view in chapter four. Now, what we might want here is is Faye's point of view on being abused by her husband. That's not what we get. What we get are her, her opinions about her, her weird brother, Jack. So again, maybe this is Jack writing as his sister thinking about him, which would be kind of a cool way to think about it. But in any case, we get a phase point of view. And, um, you know, Jackie Cedar was arrested for suing candy and they he's arrested and the store doesn't press charges. But, you know, he stole these like um, chocolate covered ants for some reason. And they don't really understand. Faye doesn't understand her brother. Charlie doesn't understand his brother in law. And eventually, you know, he's broke. He, he has quit his job. He, he's got this very liquid career, actually. The way it's described is, you know, he just has all these different jobs. Where is it? I'm looking for the page where he talks about all the different jobs he had. Anyways, I can't find it, but uh, he, he, you know, he would have jobs for a few weeks and then move on, even a few days. So he had a very liquid career himself. Um, one of the job, few jobs he liked was that tire grooving, but he has quit all his jobs. He's been arrested, and eventually Faye and Charlie decide to take him in and and then let him stay with stay with them. So they have to kind of collect all his crap, you know, and take it with them, take him with them into their house. And they got this big house, so they have room for him. There's actually we get to the, we get the architecture of the house. So there's plenty of room for for Jack to live there. And Charlie actually is the one who talks Faye into taking Jack into the house with them. Faye was a little bit more hesitant to do that. And Charlie's idea is that we can get him a job like on a nearby farm or something. And then he can kind of start a new career that way. That can be something good for him. And 
you know, live, moving out in the countryside will be good for him. Right? Um, Faye really does, though, emphasize Jack's speculate, speculative mind and his really impressionable mind and how these two things are really quite similar. That there's, you know, from one point of view, I guess, Jack's mind is perceptive and curious and speculative and that's a good thing but it's impressionable as well right like the old saying have an open mind but not so open your brains fall out i think that's Faye's anxiety about her brother and of course Faye has all the memories of of charlie's weird behavior throughout his life and she ponders on some of these at the end of the chapter we get quote not many years ago Elk and Bear had roamed around the hills overlooking Tomales Bay, and the winter before, Charlie claimed to have spotted a huge black leg at the edge of the headlights. Something had gone off into the woods. And if it wasn't a bear, it was a man in a bear suit. But I didn't discuss this with Jack. There was no point in providing him with the local myths, because he would soon enough be concocting myths of his own. It would not be bears or elks that meandered down into the vegetable garden after dark and ate the rhubarb. It would be Martians whose flying saucers had landed on the Inverness canyons. Now it occurred to me remember the feverish flying saucer activity at Inverse Park. A rabid group already existed. They would no doubt draw Jack into their midst and give them the benefit of their twice-weekly explorations into hypnosis, reincarnation, Zen Buddhism, ESP, and of course, UFOs. End quote. So that ends chapter four. It sets up an important subplot in the story, which is going to be these this cult she's talking about, this UFO cult in Inverness. And Faye knows about them and is already kind of worried about them and thinks about them a bit. But that's chapter four. So chapter four basically recounts from Faye's point of view how this family decided to bring in Jack into their midst. So we're going to pick up with what that means in chapter six, but we'll have to do that in the next episode. For now, we're just going to look at chapter five to, and finish up this episode. Um, this shifts back to a third-person narration, and it's mostly dealing with Faye again. So we, we stick with Faye, but we shift to a third-person narration. And... The opening scene is that there's a boy and a girl. Um, now, they're described as a boy and a girl by the narrator and by Faye's point of view. They're a boy and a girl. Now, they seem to be young, but they're actually a couple in their 20s, a married couple, called Knack and Gwen and Teal. Right? They're going to be a key couple in the rest of the story. And they're going to interact with the Humes, Faye Hume and Charlie Hume, in very intimate ways. Right now, though, Faye's just observing them and very curious about them. And there's a bit of voyeurism with this and we get a lot of the sense of the voyeurism of of these communities you know people watch each other Faye's very obsessed with what people think about her and what and be talking about her and know about her when she starts having an affair with nat later on i'll just let you know spoiler alert sorry about that um she she's mostly interested in what people are going to say about her in the community so there's a whole kind of theme of voyeurism going on here and Faye is part of that voyeuristic culture. She's obsessed with these people. Where do they come from? Who are they? Why are they so pretty? You know, what are they into? What job do they have? Where do they live? Faye is also presented here as a bit of a social animal, being uh, both in her past and currently is trying to maintain this. Quote, ex-college queen, ex-sorority girl, marries well-to-do man, moves to Marin County, starts modern dance group. You know, that is... Um, that's how people see Faye. That's Charlie actually making fun of Faye, saying this is how people see you. Now, that's the first meeting they have with these, and it's just Charlie and Faye looking at them and talking about them. Now, Charlie later on sees them, or sees Nat, I think it is, at the post office. 
Now, at the time, he thinks this is just a random meeting, but he thinks, like, maybe this is fate. And he starts to think that, you know, he starts to have this anxiety about Faye, what Faye would want, and what kind of control Faye has over him. And she, he tells a story about a cat. And essentially, it's about a cat that he loved, a cat that he had, that Faye made, made him get rid of, right? So this is something that's never happened to me. I, I find it... Uh, I find it believable that this has happened to couples in the past, so I don't think it's it's total fantasy, but, you know, where someone has an animal they love or something else that means a lot to them, whether it's a habit, maybe they smoke cigars, maybe they drink, maybe they like a certain sport, and then the spouse, the new the new spouse says, no, you're not allowed to do that. I don't like that. I, I don't like smoke. I don't like baseball. I don't like... Uh, your friends, whatever it may be, right? The, the spouse breaks it up. So I think it's a pretty common occurrence, right? Now here, the symbol of it is, is Charlie's cat that Faye makes them give up. Now, it's not that they have no animals. They actually have a lot of animals. So they have like a little farm, you know, sheep. I think you know, it's like, is it sheep? Yeah, I think it's sheep they have and, and horses and things like that. But it's somehow it's like a power play, right? That, and that's how Charlie sees it anyway. It was a power play by Faye to to torment him to, by forcing him to get rid of his cat. So actually the whole story is like they, they pick up this feral cat and at first Faye for doing it and then later on the cat, like Faye doesn't want the cat anymore and she kind of encourages to run away and she gets it to finally run away and Charlie blames her. He blames her for getting rid of this cat that he started to fall in love with and that the kids liked and he still resents it and I think part of the point is he, he carries on this resentment for Faye all the time, whether it's buying Tampax or he's just at the post office. But this, for whatever reason, this story leads him to, or thinking about the story leads him to this bold act of introducing himself to the boy and the girl. I guess it's both of them at the post office, both Nat and Gwen. He meets them, he walks right up to them, you know, which is a pretty bold act, I suppose and invites them over into the house. Now, essentially what he's doing here is he's inviting the man who's going to cuckold him into his house, uh, you know, at this moment. Um, he gets their names, Nat Antiel and Gwen Antiel, and, and and that's it. That starts a new phase in their life, the the phase of their friendship with the, the Antiels. So in the next episode, we'll talk about that friendship, where it goes. We'll talk about the... The introduction of Charlie. So actually, it's three people get introduced into this this uh, bourgeois nightmare that Faye and Charlie have con con constructed for themselves. Uh, Faye's brother, and then Nat and Gwen and Teal, who won't live with them, obviously, but don't live that far away and will become part of their circle. So um, that's going to be it for now. So anyway, it's a very interesting novel about uh, bougie life in the 1950s, Confessions of a Crap Artist. Uh, if you've read this novel, uh, let me know what you think. I know there's been a French adaptation of this book, a film adaptation. I've never seen it. If you've seen that, let me know how well it does. Does it kind of live up to this novel? Uh, but where do you think this fits into Dick's works? Do you think it helps us understand some of the themes of his novels in, in other ways? I, I'm focused on the relationship aspect of it, but I think it also suggests somewhat how Dick saw science fiction at the time. It also has a lot about like the California culture and especially the, the fads of it, the UFO cults, religious uh, creativity, all that going on. 
So there's a lot of interesting themes to talk about in this novel, but but let me know what you think. Uh, please uh, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. In the next episode, I'll look at chapters 6 through 10 of Confessions of the Crap Artist, getting us to the halfway point of, of the story. So as always, thanks for listening, and I will we'll see you next time. To feel these changes happening in me No